Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for all the wonderful things that you give to us, Lord, for life and breath, and allowing the world to continue, and so that, that everyone could hear your gospel, and that everyone could receive the good news and receive your forgiveness, um, that you didn't just bring judgment all at once, but you opened up this time and space for us to receive the good news of what your Son has done for us. So we thank you for that, and we pray, Lord, that as we study the forgiveness of sins, that we would really understand the heart of the gospel and what motivates us in our whole Christian life and how important it is for our identity and really resting and having peace. And so it's your son's name we ask these things. Amen. So this week, we're just going to focus in on the one phrase, the forgiveness of sins, which is underneath the bracket or the category of the Holy Spirit which might not make sense at first, um, but we will kind of unpack that as we kind of go through and why it's directly in the context of the church and understanding what the church is. So the three things I want to talk about today are, first, justification and the forgiveness of sins. Second, faith alone, how faith alone is what justifies us. And then third, how the heart of the gospel of justification and forgiveness relates to the whole, whole gospel in terms of all the benefits that we have in Christ. And so how, how that right standing before God relates to our sanctification and the good works that flow from that. So those are three big things that I want to talk about today. But first, I want to read uh, from a couple passages beginning in Ephesians 2. Uh, beginning in verse 4, just as a context for understanding salvation as a big category. Um, So, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that one passage just really is going to be the background of how all these things kind of relate together. Um, And then moving over to Romans 10, verses 13 and following, says, For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they believe, or they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? But faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So those two things, I think, are really important for setting the stage of understanding this big word, salvation, 
I think we oftentimes think about the question, when were you saved? And it instantly skews our understanding of what salvation is as this big category. And I want to say that salvation is this all-encompassing thing that includes the entire work that we've been talking about of God's redeeming work, his reconciling work, his saving work, and then applying it to us in the Holy Spirit. So everything that God is doing, everything he's done for us, is under this word salvation. And But salvation, this gospel, the word gospel comes from this word of good news. Um, and specifically coming from Paul, we just read in Romans 10, the idea of this gospel is, is an announcement. It's a specifically a war news. It's a war announcement. And it's fundamentally about this new reality. Uh, and Paul has this really weird thing he's quoting from Isaiah where he says, how blessed are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel. Why is he saying these people's feet are nice? You know what I mean? Like, why are they? Why is he just saying like how? Well, yeah, it's great. Look at those feet. You know what I mean? Um, but he's specifically taking this I- image from the war. He's specifically taking this image of someone who is coming from the battlefield and who's running to tell the city what happened in war. That these two great armies are going out against each other. And you could just tell by how the runner was running if it was victory or defeat. You could tell by their feet. And so that's what it's getting at. It's like this person is coming, this ambassador is coming and running back to the city and telling them who has won. And that is what the gospel ultimately is that Paul is picking up on. That preachers, the church, Christians are receiving this message and the preachers are declaring it. And, and they, the very way that their feet are running, they're just telling us this announcement of a new reality that they've received, that they've seen, and they're telling the world this salvation that has changed everything. And that is what the, that's what we're receiving. That's what we're hearing, which is what creates faith in our hearts to believe and confess the credo, I believe, before the world what we've heard. And so that is the context of what the gospel primarily is. It's not good advice. It's not like how do we perfect ourselves or even attempt to help out in the battlefield. It's no, it's just like we're coming and we're just receiving this gospel as primarily about this declaration of what God has done for us in Christ on the battlefield of sin, death, and hell and how he's won. And then we just are receiving it. And it's, so it's primarily that war declaration that our warfare has ended and our iniquity has been pardoned, as Isaiah says. He says, comfort, comfort ye my people. And he's saying, tell them that their warfare is accomplished and their iniquity is pardoned. So that's just a brief little sketch. But So the forgiveness of sins, that's what we're talking about here. So what are sins? I mean, we talked about it already a little bit in the last quarter, but just kind of briefly to go over that. um, Our catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, says that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So it's not conforming to it. It's a transgression against the law of God, which echoes what, what John says in his epistle. He says that sin 
is lawlessness. But it also has a lot of other aspects to it, too. Um, but it's lawlessness in relationship to God as the, as the good lawgiver. It's rebellion in relation to him as our good king. And it's, it's, an, it's missing the mark and what God has designed for us to be as creatures before his face. And then also sin is a cosmic kind of rebellion. It's cosmic rebellion in the face of how God made the universe and as a place of love and peace before our holy God. So sin results in, if you remember, we talk about three things that results in guilt, shame, and corruption, and which produces uncleanness before a holy God. Um, so sin in us is, first of all, a condition before it even turns into actual sins. What do I, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by it being a condition? Well, it's that every point of our lives, our head, our hearts, our affection, all everything has been tainted, and there's not a single thing that's not untouched by it. It's poison and it's pollution. So because of Adam's sin that we talked about in previous weeks, everyone is born infected by the guilt and pollution and shame of sin. It appears in our desires as well as our deeds and our motives as well as our actions. So it's not just actions. Um, the Book of Common Prayer says that we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts because of that condition and that we have left undone all the things that we should do and the things that we ought to have done we don't do and we do those things which we ought not to have done and that there is no health within us. There's nothing, no spiritual health from which we can like muster the good action to come out and, and you know love God. There's no point in us that has that. So sin is everyone's problem and in the sight of God. And God can't look even look at something that's wrong because he is so pure and full of love. And as, like, as the Habakkuk 1.13 describes, um, but our life has become this kind of minefield of sin and decay and death the harder we try on our own power to avoid sin, the actually the, the more often we just like find and step on a mine, and and we kind of get blown apart by a, by the effects of our own decisions, and we never actually make it through to, to the to the safe side. We never make it through to the side of peace, and we fail ultimately to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, which Jesus says is the summary of the law. Those are the two great commandments. That's the summary is love. Um, and so that, that the sins that separate us leave us all under the wrath of God, as Paul says in Romans 1, which is revealed against heaven, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And so I think an interesting way to think about it is that sin... So specifically is this capacity to no longer be able to rest. It's, it's this anxiety, it's this constant bent in us to want to selfishly 
prove ourselves. Um, if you remember back when we when we went through the first quarter through the, the Bible, like the series through the Bible, we talked about how Adam and Eve were put into this relationship of works, this covenant of works, by which they related to God, and they were supposed to achieve holiness before Him and reach this goal. Well, that's how we're all bent. We're all wired for law. We're all wired for good works and wanting to improve God, to improve and impress people. And that's just kind of like how we're wired. But because of sin, we're never actually able to reach that mark. We're never actually able to complete what that is. And so sin in us is this inability to rest. And we're filled with anxiety and we're filled with stress and all this like everything we do never actually comes to fruition in our lives it's like what lewis says like we're it's always winter and never christmas where we're just like it's just that constant feeling of oppression of winter but never getting to the point where the presents come out you know and it just keeps going on and on and on and we'll get to we'll get to that more as we go but the creed assumes that unlike all the religions of the world, which don't think that we've fallen that far or that badly, um, it says that there's sin and the sin is on us. But it also radically just gives us this call of hope that there's forgiveness, that forgiveness is here. And that there's this radical forgiveness for this radical sin in our lives. And so this is central to what we say the gospel is, the good news um, the forgiveness of sins is shorthand for the heart of the gospel. It's that great psalm with the, with the big but in the middle, that if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So God radically alters the world, as we see, to bring us that forgiveness of sins. Why? The psalmist says we can worship him with true love and true fealty and love and godly fear for the first time. So forgiveness for forgiveness of sins is here is shorthand for the entire gospel. It's how we're brought back to God in fellowship and, and friendship and love, and how we are reconciled and brought into his loving family at the cost of what we talked about many times of the, of the cross. It took the cross of Jesus to bring that to us, to bring that peace, that wartime declaration that we're talking about. Sin is that capacity in us to not be able to rest, to be anxiously trying to prove ourselves before God and others, to justify ourselves. But the gospel is this declaration that 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 warfare, that anxiety that's in us is, is over, that constant battle to try to prove that we're in the right is done and that our iniquity is pardoned. And so the gospel is this declaration that we have this real rest in Jesus for the first time, that we have the Sabbath rest in him where he says, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for my burden is easy and my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so this really gets to the heart of the gospel, what we talk about justification. Justification by faith alone. And this is important that it's in the, it's in the church section 
of the Apostles' Creed because this is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Like this is the hinge of the whole Christian religion that without this, the, the door and the hinge would just fly right off and the church would no longer be the church uh, because it actually loses the heart of its existence, the heart of why there's preaching, the heart of why there's discipleship, the heart of what we're receiving in Christ. Um, and we need this doctrine. Without it, the church would not be the church. So what is this important teaching? What does it mean to be justified? Well, first of all, it's a declaration. Justification is this declaration, as we talked about, this war declaration that you have peace with God. That you have peace with God. That, that a wicked sinner in this enemy city, this hostile city, is now at peace with the great king who's overcome our sin, our death, and hell. The wicked sinner is now righteous. And the basis for this status, this basis of this declaration, can't come from within us, as we said, because everything has been touched by the evil decay of sin. But it comes wholly outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ that he was the righteous one and his righteousness is counted towards us. It's given towards us as a gift. And the Holy Spirit clothes us in that righteousness. And it's like a garment that's being laid on top of us so we look like now we're princes and queens and kings in God's kingdom. And... So this declaration is, is says that we are all looked at as not only as if we had never committed any sin, but if we had actually accomplished all the righteousness that God requires in every single detail because of the obedience of Jesus Christ that he's earned for us. What a sweet deal that is. I mean, like, all we're sitting here is receiving it, and we're constantly striving after that goal, never able to accomplish it in our lives, and we just hear this declaration that God has fulfilled everything that we need. And there, are, there are many passages that we've, we've already talked about that kind of pick up on this, but here are just a few. Um, and the Lord God made for Adam, for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them in it. Going back to Genesis 3.15, God sacrificed these animals. They were trying to justify themselves and sew those fig leaves together. And God comes, he takes that away, and he puts the garment of salvation on them with these animal skins. And then Paul talks about if Abraham was justified by works, then he would have something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? That Abraham believed, he had faith, and that was counted to him as righteousness. And because of that, Paul later says, there's now, for anyone who has that faith, there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Paul says in Galatians 2 that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in him and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. For our sake, 
he, Jesus, was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So this justification, this declaration, we see throughout the whole Bible, going back to Adam and Eve, where they were naked and ashamed before God and that guilt was before them. God makes a sacrifice and he slaughters these animals and he puts the skin of that sacrifice on them. Um, And this declaration isn't just as if I had never sinned. I think that a lot of people think of justification like that, but that's only half the deal. That's only half of the gospel. It's also saying that we are actually righteous before God, that the bank account was in debt. It's not only brought back up to zero, but everything that we need, we are at 100%. We have all that we need in the bank to be before God, to enter into his glory. That's why King David can make this wonderful, wonderful declaration that blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. This is the only real good news that, that can really make us acceptable before God. And God is freeing us to rest because of everything that he has done. And that's ultimately what the beginning of this whole new salvation that God is bringing about is about. It's being able to rest for the first time based on this declaration of forgiveness and righteousness. And and so this 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 word justification is this kind of war and courtroom declaration that we talked about earlier where a judge is coming and making this this declaration before the world. Um, if you think of it, it's kind of like a presidential pardon. Um, that's kind of a close analogy. It's not exactly the same thing that we see what's going on in the, in the Bible. Like with the pres- presidential pardon, we see someone who, you know, may be guilty before a court, but they have done a lot of good things. There's some merit to what they've done, and they're not completely bad people. And maybe they even have been, you know, declared guilty for something they haven't done. And so the president or a governor will come along and, you know, they'll just do a really kind thing by declaring pardon over that person and allow them to get off that hook. Um, But when it comes to this kind of pardon, when it comes to this kind of thing, we are completely guilty for what we've been declared before this court. We're completely guilty for everything that's, that's transpired. But the judge is giving us his innocence. The judge is giving us his purity. The judge is giving us his good works, and then he's going to die for us. You know, like he's taking the full punishment, and he's going to jail for us. And he's saying, because of that, you can go completely free and walk in that peace. That we, the guilty, are now innocent. And that his innocence is counted as ours. Our guilt becomes his guilt. All our endless anxious striving for that peace is now over. And that constant inner warfare is now done. And 
This is all because of Jesus' atoning death and his perfect life that he's lived for us, that he accepts you and me as righteous. And we receive that justification and forgiveness and peace by, by faith alone, apart from works. That you have this peace, that it's really yours. Um, like that, if you remember back that analogy of the, of, the, of the messenger, the ambassador, who's running back to the city. So the war is way out there. We don't really see it, but the, but the messenger's coming, and he's telling us, you know, the good army, they're, they're on their way, they've had this victory, and they're going to be here in a few days. But this is the result of what's going to happen. If you rest in the, in the work of this son Jesus, you won't receive judgment. The judgment day is come early. We're hearing the declaration of that, of that last great judgment scene in the Bible. We're hearing that right now. And that declaration is true now. It's not something we have to wait for. It's not something to process. But he's saying this is true for you now. And so we don't see around us necessarily all the effects of that victory, which is what makes it hard in life. You know, we don't, we don't see it. And so we have to trust in the news report that we're hearing of what this person is saying, that this is what's going to happen in a few days. The army is going to roll through and all the enemies are going to be vanquished. But if you receive this gift, you will be at peace. Um, no condemnation awaits anyone who is in, in Christ. And he's giving us as free gift to us. And so without this, this, this understanding of justification, what is called the great exchange, um, the church is actually unable to be the church. The church no longer can be this embassy declaring the victory of what is coming. If it doesn't get this right, it misses the whole purpose of its existence. It misses everything that we're here to do. Um, we cease to be that beacon of light, the colony of heaven, declaring the victory of heaven. Does that make sense? So like this is why it's in that church section, because it's, this is a part of what it means to be the church. Um, it exists to point the whole world to this Savior, to Jesus Christ. So that's why this doctrine of justification is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of what it means to believe in Jesus. And without it, we can't be those ambassadors declaring the victory that has happened. Um, so that's the first point of what justification is, very briefly. Any questions or thoughts about that before we move on? Is that clear? So justification is this once-for-all declaration, that wartime declaration of, of this good news that the victory has been won and the spoils of the battlefield are being given to us and peace is given to us freely because of what Christ has done. So faith, why is it faith alone? Um, one good definition of faith that I really love is that true faith is a sure knowledge where I, whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it's a firm confidence that not only to others, but to also to me, God has granted that forgiveness of sins 
everlasting righteousness and salvation out of the mere grace that is only for the sake of Christ's merits. And this faith, the Holy Spirit, works in me by the heart of the gospel. So faith, like I said, is that is, is first of all resting. It's not something we're doing. It's, it's an open hand that's merely an instrument receiving that, that declaration. Like It's like that wartime scene. We do, we're not doing anything to make that happen. It's, it's merely something we were t- it's declaring to us. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, uses that declaration to create faith in our hearts to believe in this very thing. It's an instrument that just, it's, it's a hand, empty hand that receives all that Christ has done. Believing in the good news of that report that the warfare has been accomplished. Um, so why does, why does this faith alone even matter? I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of people get confused or don't understand why we make such a big deal about this. And why, why does it even matter? Who cares? I mean, I believe in Jesus. Isn't that enough? But I mean, I think there, there is a lot of things that are important about justification by faith alone. First of all, I think that we can say that justification by faith alone kills pride. Um, I think it's, it's of eternal significance and it's true, but it also kills pride. Paul, in his, in, his, in his letter to the Romans, he says, justification by faith alone excludes all of our boasting. Because if you remember what I said, what sin is, sin is that constant striving. It's that striving to have something to boast about and trying to prove our worth in our own power, but always missing the mark. But what becomes of our boasting, Paul says, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but even by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified apart from works of the law. So faith prevents us from having pride in our own works and pride in the world and seeing Christ as the only acceptable thing before God. It means being declared righteous apart from any of our obedience or works or worth. And the, the glory belongs to God alone. So that's huge. Like that's, all, that's the ultimate end game of this is to see, once again, God as our glory. Like That's the only reason why it matters is because we have to really come to the end of ourselves. We have to have the rug pulled out from underneath our feet, trying to self-justify ourselves again and again and again. Have that rug pulled out and, and see God and Christ as our glory. That we have this God who's gone to the ends of the world to bring us back to himself, and all we can do is just praise him. So second also, I think another thing is that this understanding of justification by faith alone gives us the ultimate assurance. So it's not only a killing pride, but it gives us ultimate assurance because it gives us confidence in God that he calls it peace. The, the Christian state is one of rejoicing because, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
And so we can rejoice in hope in the glory of God. You know, our, our good works are going to come and go. Our feelings are going to wax and wane. They're going to go up and down. Our assurance is going to, is going to, some mornings we might not have any and we might feel like the most worthless sinner in, in the eyes of God. But we have objective peace with him because of his son. We can have, assurance is a gift. It's yours. You don't have to think, am I assured of my salvation? You don't have to think, what do I have to do to gain that peace? It's yours as a free gift. And because it's not based on your pride, it's not based on your good works, it's not based on how you feel today or tomorrow, you have the most perfect assurance in your, in your Savior. You have that as a free gift. No matter how, what life looks like or what we see around us, it doesn't seem like Jesus is one. It doesn't seem like that victory that seems so far off is going to happen, and we're just waiting for it. But we know, we can really know that we are assured that our feelings may come and go, but God's love for us does not. That God will keep his promise. So justification by faith alone gives us that ultimate assurance. But it also, thirdly, makes the Christian life possible for the first time. Um, It leads us to start praising God. We don't have to selfishly look at our good works every three seconds and wonder if they're going to measure up. If you're worried about your good works all the time and constantly having to please God and others, you're never going to be able to let go. You're never going to be able to have that rest. But Jesus says it's done. Everything is done. All I want you to do is just worship me. And so out of gratitude, we can start actually living the Christian life for the first time for our neighbor, that we can present our bodies. Why? By the mercies of God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before him, which is your spiritual worship. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so... Far from making the Christian life lazy and, and just like, oh, well, I can do everything because it's grace, faith alone, you know, boom, I'm done. No, it's, it's actually the heart that accepts this is filled with that peace and joy for the first time so that we can rest. And now we're free because we're not trying to constantly tear up the roots of our tree and fruit inspect every three seconds. You know, we actually can leave it in the ground, we can let, let the waters rain down on it, and we can actually start producing fruit. Um, a clear understanding of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, and being renewed in that, being conf- renewed in that rather than being conformed to this world, is the best motivation for good works. Um, because the Holy Spirit is now at work in our lives making this reality more and more true, making this reality of the forgiveness of sins more and more true. Um, And, yeah, I mean, we, we might not find the words faith alone in Scripture, but everywhere we see, I think we see that justification by faith alone is is true to Scripture, and we just use that as a shorthand. So we see that it kills pride. It gives us that ultimate assurance. 
it makes the Christian life possible, but it's true. That's which is why we have to declare it and we have to understand it. Um, it only matters if it's true. Um, we might not find those exact words in that exact order, faith alone, but the meaning is all over Scripture. Any time that Paul or the Bible contrasts law with with works, law and gospel, faith with works, grace and condemnation, Paul is teaching us that this declaration of our standing before God is received by faith alone, and that itself is a free gift, as we read in Ephesians 2. But the gospel doesn't end there. That's the, that's the amazing thing. Like, the gospel does not end there. Um, it includes something so much even more wonderful. It includes the holiness and the sanctification of the good works of the Christian life. Like we said, that it makes the Christian life possible for the first time. Um, but why? Uh, because true faith doesn't just know that God exists. It doesn't know that just even know that Christ died for sinners or that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and that he's king over creation, but it rests in Jesus as a complete Savior, as a complete Savior, the whole package of God's promises for us, um, which includes acceptance with God, but also that the Holy Spirit is given to us and starts shedding abroad in our hearts that love of Christ, the love of God in Christ. So that's like the third point we're going to briefly talk about. I think oftentimes we have that problem, that tension between grace and good works in our life, maybe faith and what sancti- how sanctification, how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, how that even relates to this idea of salvation. And so there can be a lot of confusion on that idea. Like, for instance, people often ask the idea, like, in church, oh, when were you saved? That's, like, a very common thing that we we just talk about. And it's not bad, but it oftentimes thinks about salvation as just when we were converted or just when we had faith. And it doesn't seem to see that we were truly saved 2,000 years ago on the cross. We are saved right now and we're also being saved that salvation is this huge all-encompassing thing that includes all the benefits of what it means to be a part of this new relationship with God we talked about the covenant of grace where God's choosing us before the foundation of the world is part of the gospel where him calling us and, and, re, and giving us new life and regenerating us is a part of the gospel. Him giving us faith and justifying us. Him adopting us as children and then starting to sanctify us and make us like his son. Him holding on to us and preserving us and then one day making us glorified just like his son. Now that is all part of the gospel. Um, that's all under this category of salvation. And that's everything that God is doing for us, and that's found in Jesus. So sometimes we we really confuse those things, and we really don't know what to do with good works in the Christian life. Um, it can be often a very confusing thing. On one end of the spectrum, 
You may find people who believe that in some sense they're contributing or adding to Christ's work. I mean, they, they may not say it like that. Um, whether, it's, whether it's their own good works or their work in the church or their act of faith, they have to really commit themselves to Jesus again and again and again. That there's something that they have to do. You know, Christ may have died for my sins, but there's something I have to do to remain in God's good graces. Um, how many of you have heard that idea or just like seen that around you? Uh, it's, it's pretty prevalent. And all of those things, in some sense, undermine what Christ did, thinking that his work is incomplete. Uh, that we have to add something to it, either a perfect act of faith or penance or something to remove our own burden of guilt. That somehow we have to meet God halfway. He does his part. I do my part. God likes to forgive. I like to sin. It's a great combo. And and, and like people might say that. What's that? Yeah, yeah, we'll meet in heaven. Um, and you think that that's meeting God halfway, but that's not what grace is. Um, but on the, under, and the other end of the spectrum, we, we often find people that talk about the grace of God to the neglect of God's work within us and, and don't really see how the gospel includes all the things that Christ has done for us. Um, if you've grown up in a legalistic home, or an environment, and we often don't know what to make of the Christian life, where there's little room for virtue or good moral examples or habits or discipline. And when we come to a a greater understanding of God's grace, the gospel of free grace, um, we don't know know what to do with the work that God is doing within us. Anything that sounds like a duty is like resented. And it's like, oh, my Christian liberty, man, you just can't step on that. But, but I think that God's word really challenges both views. We find something very different in the gospel of grace. Um, the new life that we have in Christ is far greater than we often consider because God's resurrection power, the Holy Spirit, the reason why this is all in the Holy Spirit, God's resurrection power and the Holy Spirit is now in us, changing us, giving us forgiveness of sins, but then starting to change us by Christ's new life even now. And so the Christian life can be seen as all participating in the new life that we have in Jesus from beginning to end. There's not a single thing that's not found in Jesus. When it comes to our right standing before God, we said our justification, Christ's virtues and his perfection and his holiness are the basis for that declaration that we said, that gift. Christ alone is the path and means to God, and his work is sufficient. End of story, the end, period. You know, um, But his work is also sufficient for everything that we need for life and godliness. When it comes to our moral life now and how we live, um, following Christ's example and, and all the, uh, the declarations of obedience are once again found in his perfection, in his good works. It's like a fountain. He is the fountain that the Holy Spirit is now bubbling up within us. And a river of life is flowing out of us 
And that new life that we have in him is like we're being like a tree planted by the rivers of water, by the rivers of living water, as, as the psalmist says, and we're united to him. That his work of salvation is the source from the beginning to the end. That's why he's the author and finisher of our faith. So sanctification is specifically all of Christ's righteousness now being formed in us. So justification is being declared righteous, but now that righteousness is being formed in us. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is such a powerful thing, because he's saying the good works that you are doing are a gift of grace that God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in. Your faith is a gift, your conversion, your justification, adoption, but your sanctification and those good works that we're doing are themselves what God himself in Christ has prepared for you. So we can stop like trying to force it up within ourselves. So even in our sanctification, we have rest. Like that's the crazy thing. That's a gift. Our good works are a gift that he's giving to you, he wants to give to you because he's making you like his son that the Holy Spirit is using to form and shape us into his image, that his eternal love is filling us from the inside out. And so the Christian life is really learning to rest in that identity and having that identity flow through us in our good works by the power of the Spirit. So Jesus doesn't just open the door to the new life in order for us just to try harder. No. He himself is the new life. He is the vine. We are the branches. Abide in him. Just rest in him. Um, We find more and more life by abiding in him. We find all the riches of God in him. That was prepared for those who love him. So the gospel can be talked about, you know, narrowly in the heart of it. Nice heart that Vanessa drew. As justification and forgiveness. That's the heart of the gospel. the, the, The narrow understanding of the gospel. But then broadly, it includes everything that Christ has done. Everything that we are now being made. And... That is the gospel of salvation. Salvation includes all of those things. We are, we were saved, we are saved, and we're being saved. Jesus' work not only removes the guilt of sin in our lives, but now it's power and it's dominion. So we don't have to go on sinning anymore. Isn't that amazing? Like, we don't have to. And even when we do, Jesus still provides like his continuing sacrifice, his continuing work for us in heaven is to show that his power is enough to hold on to us. Paul has this great line that it took me forever to actually figure out where he says, you know, if we've been saved by his death, how much now are we being more saved by his life? He's resurrected in heaven, immortal and glorious, and his power And his sacrifice was good enough to save you. But how much more is now his life at the right hand of God saving us? 
so that nothing can separate us from God's love. Not only is death, but he's saving us right now. He's holding on to us and preserving us by his power so that nothing will separate us from that love. And he cleanses us each day with his love so we can walk in his power and his love again and again. So after being forgiven of our sins and clothed with that righteousness, God continually gives Christ to us and all his benefits so that we are now participating in his very life by faith. Um, And that's how God starts shaping us and forming us into the image of Christ. Which is why then Paul can say, then work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because all these things are happening. We can run the race before us because we have that foundation, knowing that all these things are gifts to us. So to believe in the forgiveness of sins, to believe in all this gospel, justification by faith alone, and then sanctification, good works, is all a part of what God is doing. We find that our whole life is completely found in Jesus. There's nothing that he lacks. From beginning to end, from A to Z, we never graduate from the school of the gospel, which is why we hear it every week, which is why we're fed it every week. We never graduate from this school. Only moving up and further in. Like that's all we're doing. We're moving further up and further in. And this, this wonderful thing that we have as the Christian life is a freedom to start dying again to ourselves. Like having that rest. We die to that pride, that boasting every day. We have faith in him. We die to ourselves And then we really rest and learn to live in Christ. And that's when we start beginning to experience the joy of the Christian life. The joy that God has given to us. That Jesus' life is slowly beginning to be worked out in us. Especially in in, in all our dependencies. In all our weaknesses. Because that's where he's shining. Like the thing that we think are weaknesses in our lives are often the very things that God is using to show his glory. Those are the strengths that God is using in the world to show his glory to everyone else. The death that Jesus died to sin is once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives for me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the Christian life. It's that constant dependence on Jesus. This is the door to all the other blessings that we have in God. And we can never graduate from this gospel because it's as big as the universe. And in many ways, it's the only future that the world has. Because it's that, it's that wartime declaration that this reality is coming. And all we can do is have faith and praise God for what he's done. Um, any questions, thoughts or comments, rebukes, rebuttals?
idea of faith is a gift. Yes. Yet there's scripture that will say, you know, um, you know, right. you only have faith the size of a mustard seed. So then it doesn't appear to be a gift. Right. It seems to be something I'm supposed to conjure. Right. So, I mean, faith is something that we are doing, like in the sense that it's not someone else doing it for us, but it's merely the instrument by which we receive Christ. So it's a, it's a very much a gift, but a lot of those other passages that you're thinking about are showing that it's not about the strength of your faith. It can be the size of a mustard seed. It can be weak anything. It could be the smallest amount of faith, but if you have faith in the savior like the object it can do anything it can say to this mountain which he was talking about the temple mount saying like that whole religion in which people thought they could be right with god is thrown into the sea because the, the strength of your savior is stronger than this world so faith is something that we have to do for ourselves it's not only other people's but it's our faith but even that capacity to believe and rest is given by God and the the whole point is like not to look to your faith itself because that's going to wax and wane and it's going to kind of go up and go up down but the object is what makes it strong does that make sense mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah, no, it's it's tough. Like it's not it's it's very much a part of understanding like how the capacity to believe we have to be regenerated and made new first. And so because of that, that gives us the capacity to believe for the first time. And that's what why it's a gift. Um but yeah, that's a good question. What do yes. you think about in James where it says faith without works is dead? Yeah, so faith without works is dead is is really talking about he's bringing up the whole idea that says like he said even the demons believe and they shudder because they know that God is one. And so he's getting at the fact that um so we we often say that there's three parts to faith. Uh if you remember back from like the first week of the quarter, we said that there's knowledge, assent and trust. And so belief can be used as a term to just even talk about knowledge or even assent. So you know the facts, you know that they're true, but you don't trust that it's true for you. And so a lot of a lot of times people have faith in the historical act of Jesus, but they really don't make it a heartfelt trust and confidence that this is a reality for me. And so James is talking about, he's coming around and he's saying, this kind of faith, just this kind of faith that they just know that God is one, is no good to you. Um, because it doesn't actually accept it doesn't actually accept Christ in all of his benefits. And so the faith that justifies is by faith alone, but it's never alone. It always produces good works. And so if you if we are just saying, yeah, I believe in God, go be warm and be filled, but it doesn't actually produce the religion of taking care of orphans and widows, as James says, then your then your faith is in question. So it's, it's really no different than Paul saying, like, that at the end of the day, if you don't have love, 
then you're a noisy gong and, and, a, and a symbol. And, and that faith must, in some sense, spring forth to good works. But it does it because all the benefits that we have in, by faith are a package deal. You can't just separate our right standing before God from our sanctification and what God is doing in us. It's a whole thing. Does that make sense? Works are like evidence of your faith. Right. It's so the, coming to faith is the gift. Right. Coming, yeah. Yeah. So James is specifically dealing with the effects of faith. Yes. And he's saying, before men, you will know that you are disciples by by your love, kind of thing. And our faith in Jesus for salvation will always show itself. If it's if it's all of this, if it's truly trust, it will just naturally want to bring forth good works because the heart rejoices and, and delights now in God for the first time. So you can't just take Christ as your Savior and not have him as your Lord. You can't have him for your right standing before God and forgiveness and not have him start transforming you by the Holy Spirit. But that's never the basis for our right standing before him. Does that help? Yeah. Good question. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, so next week we'll finish up our Apostles' Creed and we'll be looking at the resurrection of the life and the life to come. The resurrection of the body and the life to come. So let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time that we have to study such an important creed and how it summarizes your word and how we hear um, the wonderful news of the forgiveness of sins. That though we are sinners in radical, radical need of your grace, you have declared us as just and he's forgiven us and clothed us with the righteousness of your Son. And not only that, but you start working his goodness, his perfection in us, and start making us look like him and delight in him. So we ask, Lord, that you would allow this to really shape our hearts and our minds so that we can be renewed and not be conformed to this world. And it's in your Son's precious name that we ask. Amen.